You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal, and I am an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Uh, joining me to talk a little bit more about the medieval times, uh, we have joining us Jordan Poss, instructor of history at Piedmont Technical College in Greenwood, South Carolina. Uh, Jordan, how are you doing back east? Good. It's a dreary, rainy day, which puts, definitely puts me in the mood to uh, talk about British history. Right, right. Uh, insert insert Dark Ages reference here, right? Um, I was just thinking. I was just thinking it's good English weather. <laughs> uh, also joining us is uh, is David Grubbs, uh, assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Uh, David, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Things are things are well here. Not not raining, but uh, they seem to be imminent. Uh, raining imminently, so uh, that'll be that'll be exciting. And I'm hoping there isn't a dark age at my house. Um, we're hoping to keep the power on. Right, and uh, not not to date this too much because who knows when this will drop, but uh, you guys have a hurricane coming your way, right? And, uh, I, mean, I think it's still a tropical depression, uh, but either way, so was Harvey by the time it was hovering over us and drowned us. So, you know, hurricane or depression, it just depends on how much water it dumps. Sure. Well, uh, speaking of depression, let's talk about England. Uh, in the, uh, gosh, I, I forgot to look up the, the century. This is uh, the 8th century, right? The, the 730s uh, is what we're talking about today, specifically uh, the, uh, the Venerable Bede. Um, before we, uh, we dive into the history, uh, Jordan, can you, uh, can you give us just a little bit of what's going on in England uh, when this history is, uh, is being written? Yeah, uh, well, since we're talking about the Venerable Bede and his the wonderfully titled Ecclesiastical History of the English People, or uh, in some versions, the History of the English Church and People. Um, it's going to bring us up to approximately the 720s, 730s. Uh, Bede died around 735. Um, some editions of Bede will actually include a eyewitness account of his death, which is actually quite moving. Um, a lot of his history is going to overlap with stuff we've already talked about. He actually goes all the way back for the Roman context uh, to give us this kind of, you know, long view of the travails of first Britain, uh, and then finally, specifically, the English. Uh, and this is going to be interesting because at this point our perspective is flipping from that of a Gildas or a Ninius because they are both Britons. They're both the recipients of invasion, the recipients of the abuse of uh, heathen invaders, uh, whatever the circumstances of their arrival. And uh, now we're actually getting the other side of that story and and. I think a uh, David can probably 
unfold this a little bit better than I can, but a, a recurring theme of Bede's history is that of redemption, uh, where you've got this uh, heathen people who have been kind of one of the many scourges of God, along with you know Attila the Hun and the various other tribes that overwhelmed the Roman Empire, uh, now actually um, having fulfilled whatever purpose might be behind their... I don't think Bede ever uses the word punishment, but he heavily implies that there was some uh, chastisement that needed to be meted out to the corrupted, uh, kind of the corrupted, effete Western Christians of Britain at the time. Uh, having having fulfilled that role, they are themselves redeemed, right? They actually are converted by the very people that they conquered. Uh, and that is that forms a large part of his story. So um, I, I know from experience that some people who come to medieval history looking for, you know, uh, the battles and the kingdoms and the shenanigans behind the scenes and stuff, they're disappointed when they read Bede because he's really, really concerned with church politics and um, making sure that monasteries abide by the proper rule, right? And this would pro probably be pretty universally the Benedictine rule at the time, and we could probably talk about Benedict. He could probably get his whole episode down the road. Uh, but making sure that they observe a regular rule, and um, even I, who love Bede, was getting sick of hearing about Easter <laughs> by the end of the book. Um but uh, this is this creates a scenario in which you've actually got uh, on the Isle of Britain itself a multi-ethnic, multilingual, balkanized region uh, in which you in which everybody is ultimately some kind of Christian. They generally agree that they are united as you know again one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, uh, but there are a lot of particular differences that date reach back to before the invasions of the Anglo-Saxons, and again, David can probably get into that in a little bit more detail, uh, and uh, I know that's going to be a theme of our later discussion. So as for the kind of political and military context, uh, I think I described this in our last episode, um, but I slept since then. Uh, this is a region in English history that is often referred to as the Heptarchy, which is a imprecise and somewhat misleading name for the period, but uh, there's at least seven, sometimes more, kingdoms and kind of loose tribal regions that are under the control of various various kings, various sort, if you want to call them kinglets, right? Uh, and they are mentioned repeatedly throughout Bede. So if you're coming to this thinking in modern terms of England, you will be Im immensely confused because he's talking about multiple different kings, uh, some of whom get along, some of whom do not. It is, uh, again, I use the word balkanized without even really thinking about it, but that's pretty apt. Uh, shatter region of similar peoples who are sometimes cooperating, sometimes fighting with each other. Uh, and into the middle of this, of course, the church is trying to send missionaries. And the, the varying receptions that they get makes up a large part of Bede's story. Uh, as the kingdoms convert, things begin to slowly but dramatically change, which is also another running theme of his story. Uh, it is really... I went back to some of my college historiography textbooks to read back up on, you know, what these guys said about Bede, and I mean, it is, it had been a long time since I'd read him, but it's really good reading, uh, it is elegant, and I, I think a uh, an enthusiasm for his subject and charity comes through uh, tonally in a lot of what he has to write, um, which you don't get in a lot of other, uh, you certainly don't get in, you know, the more detached, um, spare chronicles. 
that are going to come later in the Middle Ages. Uh, you don't even always get in, you know, the kind of classical historiography that we would have talked about in our, like our Rome episodes. Uh, but he's talking about a time that um, the conversion process is still ongoing, right? Because the culture does not, you know, immediately become a bunch of ship-shaped Christians overnight. Uh, it is politically shattered and politically divided, and sometimes the church gets caught, caught in the crossfire. Uh, but you've got a period of um, post-invasion settling, and then gradually, and this is, uh, again, it, there's, there's a lot of blank spaces, so bear with me, gradually a series of kind of, um, what's the best word to use here? Things begin to come more, become more solid, and then they begin to unify. So a process that he's describing here is eventually going to be fulfilled in the Viking Age by, say, the Kingdom of Wessex, right? Which gradually uh, is the only kingdom of the Heptarchy left, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Uh, but the only kingdom of the Heptarchy that is left and eventually becomes the root of what we would now call England. Um, that is a, again kind of 50,000 foot high <laughs> overview of what's going on. Uh, again, don't come to be uh, expecting him to share your interest in the, you know, nitty gritty of the politics of England at the time. Uh, he is concerned with a more transcendental story, although he's got lots and lots of good detail about the other. Uh, David, what might you add to that? I mean, if you're disappointed, it's because you skipped the title. <laughs> right. right. I mean, the, the, the Latin of it is Historia Ecclesiastica, like so, it's it is literally an ecclesiastic history, a churchly history, um, uh, Ginti Sanglorum of the people of the English, right? So, you know, if you were coming to it expecting this uh, sort of politically focused great man kind of narrative, that's not at all the sort of thing that he wants to do. Um, what he's doing is. It is. It does. It is in dialogue with history as we conceive of it now. Um, but you should also be thinking of uh, uh, writers like Herodotus, um, which he may know at some remove. Um, he certainly has access to Erosius and uh, Erosius's history. One of the disciples of Augustine. Um, he also uh, has read and is a writer of hagiography, or saints' lives, and he has absolutely steeped himself in the biblical histories of, you know, the Pentateuch, uh, well, really the Heptateuch, as the the uh, um, the English saw it. Um, they they read the first four along with. Um, uh, Joshua and Judges as this kind of unit. So, if he's not giving us history as we as we expect it, there's good reasons for it, right? That he's he's writing the sort of history that he's interested in reading, <laughs> which is one that takes the story of his people and tells it in the way in the way of history that he learns both from the classical sources he's exposed to and the biblical sources. But this is stuff that we said when we talked about Ninius, right? Um, that Ninius was, was anchoring the British in the kind of the, the, both the classical tradition by pointing back to old Troy and Rome. Um, but then also um, anchoring, you know, by, by continuing making this reference to these things are happening while, 
You know, Joshua is ruling Israel, and these things are happening while Samuel is a judge. Um, Bedeninius, uh might not have liked each other if they ever met, but they had a lot in common in what they were trying to accomplish. Well, and and uh, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ahead of ourselves, but it Bede seems more refined in the way he goes about it, right? Yeah. Ninius connects England to or Britain, I guess, still for him uh, to uh, the biblical stories and the you know the Celtic stories and the Roman stories by by saying these are all connected. And then giving you like a line of succession of how they work together. Uh, Bede does some of that certainly, but it's it's much more subtle. He he does it by telling the story of the English people in the way that the classical historians would have used, or in the way that the history and scripture works. Like he he doesn't say we're the same and then pound it into the same into the same mold uh, and and then you know weld the two together. He uses the same tools. To tell the story of a different people, or am I am I reading him wrong? I'm not a medievalist, so I'll defer to you guys. You know, our listeners probably remember from last time the way that Ninius describes, or pseudo Ninius, whoever it is, describes that book as a heap. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Bede is not a heap. Right. There are a few heaps in the book. Um, they're the places where he just had a lot of letters by Gregory or whatever, and he just sort of <laughs> just says, while we're talking about Gregory, you know, here's an epistolary dump. But for the most part, uh, this book is, you know, it's not a heap, it's a narrative. And I, I, I think I think you've, you've called it right. He's got, some, he's got the same influences that Ennius has, but he has much more internalized them. It's, it's much more sophisticated than just, I'm going to make this Roman by dressing all my guys up like, you know, legionnaires with, like, you know, the broom on their helmet. You know, uh, it, it's much more of a, of a manner, of a perspective. And I, yeah, it's, it's better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, it is. Yeah, and David... And uh, David, I'm glad you brought up, you know, Herodotus and classical models, because um, we know from elsewhere that Bede is. We know so little about Ninius and so relatively little about Gildas, it's not always totally clear where they're getting their information or how they know what they know. With Bede, we have a much better idea and we know that he's even though he is the descendant of these heathens who were worshiping trees just a few few generations ago, uh, he has committed you know he's he's culturally appropriating i guess uh and is you know plugged into the classical world so i mean he's he's sending letters off to rome to request copies of documents from what is already the papal archives uh and that plugs him into a wider world so just as an example of that um you know i've, I've been doing research for a project i'm working on and, and in the little uh chronology he's got at the back of this history he notes that in one year that is relevant for my research there was a uh, eclipse. And I was like, oh, that's a nice detail that I could include in my project. Uh, so I looked it up on NASA. And this is not an eclipse that was visible in England. It passed over southern Europe. Uh, you know, the, a couple of years ago we had that eclipse um, that went across the south and that was right over right over my office, uh, which was a really eerie first day of school. But uh, so, I mean, this is something he thought important to include in his history of the English people and church that nevertheless was only visible in like 
Milan and the Balkans. Uh, so that that's uh, that, again that just drove home to me again. He's he's plugged into this wider world uh, and stylistically and in his learning, he is very much of a piece with that classical world. So that's he's another item in the you know the long list of continuity that we could break bring in when talking about you know the quote unquote fall of Rome and the emergence of a quote unquote dark age. Yeah, well, in yeah. uh, before I guess before we get too much into his text, uh, David, can you give us just a, a quick overview of who Bede is? Who is this guy that we keep mentioning? Yeah, I mean, it's helpful that he was a homebody who basically stayed in the same place from the time he was seven until he died. <laughs> I think he might have gone to visit somebody else twenty miles away, like once or twice, but for the most part, Bede was a uh, Bede was very uh, stayed very in one place and anchored uh, in a way that was maybe even unusual for a monk. <laughs> you know, we think of monks as you know, well, they they never leave. But you read this, you read the accounts, even in Bede's history of the way that Anglo-Saxon monks uh, behaved and. Uh, there was a certain amount of travel, especially if you were someone who was affiliated with a bishop or an influ influential abbot, which abbots had a lot of political pull. So they were traipsing around, um, but not so much beat. Fighting Saxons and what have you. What have you, yes. Yeah. Uh, so Bede, uh, the, the venerable Bede, as he is sometimes called uh, because of his tombstone, if I recall, uh, was a, a monk in uh, Northumbria, um, a part of kind of northeastern England that is, if I remember rightly, it's just south of Scotland now. Um, I haven't... North. Is, the, is it the, Yeah, it literally means like everything north of the Humber. So, right. I mean, that's... And that it is, it is way bigger than even Yorkshire or Northumberland now. It, it includes everything from the Humber River, which is the river that flows through what is eventually called York. Uh, and I think in the Anglo-Saxon period, it extends almost to Edinburgh. I mean, it is a huge swath of territory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, North, uh, the, the Northumbria had been previously, um, and you know, periodically it would divide and unite uh, it was two different kingdoms, Dira and uh, Bernicia, if I remember. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, that would be divided as, you know, kind of two brothers or at loggers heads. And then it would be united as they have some kind of a common heir or perhaps a marriage. Um, so uh, at the time that Bede is writing, uh, Northumbria is uh, is united. When he is seven years old, uh, he's born around uh, in the 670s, like 672, 673. Uh, when he is around seven years old, uh, he is placed in the care of uh, a uh, the, the monastery founded by a guy named Benedict Bishop, or it looks like Biscop, B-I-S-C-O-P, -B um, but S-C in Old English goes shh. So... Uh, Benedict Bishop founds this monastery called St. Peter's um, in uh, a 
uh, town that is still that, that is now still called um, Monk Wearmouth. And Benedict Bishop is super important. He was a prince uh, or a noble, an Aveling in North uh, Northumbria, and uh, but he was also a very committed uh, Christian. And he made pilgrimage to Rome multiple times and brought lots of stuff home with him. And his dream was to found a Roman-style monastery. Uh, for that, he imported stonemasons um, from, uh, from the land of the Franks, you know, Frankish stonemasons, Frankish glaziers. And the English did not build, build in stone or in glass. All right, so he builds this monastery, the first large stone structure, the first glass windows <laughs> in England uh, for, for this uh, St. Peter's Monastery. And he brings over a library of books, um, hundreds of volumes. He's bringing over icons and relics. He even nicks the Pope's own choir master from St. Peter's Basilica to teach the English monks how to chant the Romish way. Right. And so St. Peter's had had only been in operation. I don't think it had even been 10 years yet, um, but they were the new big up and coming thing. People would come around and look at it and go, wow, it's huge and amazing. And we never seen anything like this. And apparently it inspired whoever had young bead to give him into the care of this new monastery. He was there for a couple of years. And then when. Uh, St. Peter's, you know, butted off and founded a, a kind of a sister monastery in Jarrow, about seven miles away. Um, Bede went with the, um, the, the the pioneer body of monks to that new uh, uh, related institution. They were both under uh, the, the rule of Benedict Bishop, and they were both very similar. So from the age of seven... And even though he transfers from St. Peter's to St. Paul's in Jero, St. Paul's is exactly the same kind of thing as St. Peter's, right? Which means he is educated in classical languages by people who have been to Rome, by teachers who have, who have been brought, in some cases, from Rome. Um, he is learning from a library of books made on the continent, many of them from Rome. Um, and so, uh, if we see classical influences, it's cause he has much, much, much greater access to all of those kinds of learning, uh, than, uh, than would have been had previously. Um, uh, the, the monastery that he works in, um, at, uh, St. Paul's in, uh, Jero, uh, is famous in uh, as the producers of the first pandects in Western Europe. A pandect is an all-in-one-volume Bible. Um, those are very uncommon um, in, uh, in, in, in the ancient world. The oldest surviving pandects were produced in the scriptorium of uh, St. Paul's Jero during the lifetime of Bede. He almost certainly worked on it. Um, there are pages in it that almost certainly he wrote. Uh, and possibly the, the oldest pandex of all in Western Europe. Which means 
Bede was one of the very first Christian scholars in Western Europe to see and read the Bible as literally one book. <laughs> Prior to that, and in, in, in most circumstances, even after that, for a very long time, uh, the Bible was a series of books that were on a shelf. The Bible was a shelf, not a book. Um, but beginning in Jero, you've got Pandex. So th this, is the, this is the circumstances that Bede is in. Uh, he spends all of his life as a scholar there. He writes Bible commentaries. He writes sermons. Um, he writes, uh, well, we have his ecclesiastical history. He also writes a life of St. Cuthbert, who is a very famous regional saint. He writes um, the lives of the abbots of the monasteries that he is associated with. It's a very kind of um, uh, an exercise in kind of a monastic pietas as he writes about his, his, his abbas, his fathers. Um, he wrote a book on time. Which starts about, which starts with counting minutes, you know, seconds and minutes and hours, and then he works up to like ages of the world and eternity. Um, he writes a book called On the Nature of Things, which borrows a lot from Isidore of Seville and talks about things like weather and meteors and stuff like that. Um, he was apparently from just just from this uh, sketch. He was omnivorously curious. He read about everything and wrote about almost everything he read. And so it's no wonder that um, in 1899, uh, the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church recognized him as a doctor of the church. Um, and, but that, is, that, that reputation was already well established. Um, you'll find... If I remember rightly, the last volume of um, oh, I can't, I, I'm I'm I'm, for, I'm forgetting the name of them, but there's a uh, there's a very famous I think Zondervan does it maybe uh, sort of patristic commentary of the Bible, and the chronologically the last father that they'll quote, the latest father that gets quoted in this in this series is Bede, so he's kind of. Is he is he the last of the fathers, or is he one of the first of the medievals? It is, I guess it depends on where you draw the line. Um, but he definitely he saw himself as strongly and powerfully connected to this older thread of learning that he was desperately concerned should continue. And so his writing is all about making sure that that happens. I love Bede, and now I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I did. I had seen. I think I forget if it's Zondervan or uh, uh, InterVarsity Press or one of those groups that's doing the uh, the patristic commentary. And uh, it was interesting they included Bede. And I don't know if all of his commentaries are like this or not, but the couple I've read were basically just extended Augustine quotations. Like he had basically just cut and pasted Augustine into his own. So you can appreciate the project of wanting to say, "Hey, this commentary works for us too," but then it's like, "Well, why include Bede? Like, what 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 do you what is he bringing to the table?" There were some uh, there were some commentaries that Bede wrote that he wrote specifically because he because Augustine didn't write about them. Um, okay. If yeah, I, I've not read those. There is no commentary of Augustine on, for example, Nehemiah. 
And so Bede wrote a commentary on Nehemiah because it was not one that Augustine had written. Um, his commentaries that, yeah, he stitches stuff together from Augustine, absolutely. The thing, though, is that he's stitching them together from quotations that are scattered all across the works of Augustine that he has access to. And so what he's doing is he's collating everything that Augustine said that he's encountered about the Gospel of Luke and then arranging those quotations in the order of the content of Luke. <laughs> right, so, so yeah, he's quoting Augustine, but that's that's also kind of this part of this massive, uh, massive task of, of reception, collation, so that it can be preserved. Yeah, I think the uh, the mistake I ran into is I was preparing a Bible study on First John, so I read Augustine on First John, and then I read Bede on First John, which was just Augustine on First John again. <laughs> uh, it, was, it, it was uh yeah. I'm sure there were some quotations from other places, but it was mostly just the commentary I just read. Uh, we should we should get into the ecclesiastical history. Um, so this uh. uh this is kind of the, the third and the first part of this medieval set where we've, we've talked about Gildas, we've talked about Ninius, uh, and now the, uh, the, the major historian of England. Uh, and he's covering, it's not really a different time, but it's certainly in a different perspective uh, from the perspective of an evangelization that has worked, right? An, an evangelization, evangelization project that has successfully uh, brought England uh, under the authority of the gospel with, with whatever that means. Uh, so uh, I, I guess uh, we should call this the second evangelization of England, right? Because the, the Romans had brought Christianity to England. Uh, Bede talks a little bit about that. Uh, the pagan Saxons come along and stamp it out. Uh, and then the, uh, uh, I was wondering if I get feedback on this uh, from my outline. The Irish come along and save civilization. Uh, do, you, uh, do you medievalists want to comment there? You're talking about the that the book, how the Irish saved civilization. Yeah, um, I have not, I have not read it, and that's because I knew a guy in college. Who who was it that said, "Beware the man of only one book"? Oh, except uh, Cahill has a bunch of books, and they're yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm talking about this kid that I knew. Uh, oh, sure, sure. How the Irish saved civilization was his one book, and so I mean everything from. You know, modern hymnody to the very practice of history and literature itself was all an Irish thing. Um, so I, I have not read that. I, I gather it's got a re good reputation. Um, it is worth noting, though, that uh, when Bede says the Irish, he's not talking like, you know, leprechauns and lucky charms. I, this, is, this is, this is, these are, the, the Irish. The Irish are not a single unified group because uh, some of the people that he's talking about are what we would now call Scots. Because uh, during the – while we've been talking about Ninius and Gildas, the Irish have been doing stuff too, right? Because remember Patrick got kidnapped and taken back to Ireland and then came back to Britain and then went back to Ireland again. In the meantime, there's migrations out of Ireland into Britain. So uh, Bede refers several times to the Picts. Right, who live up in, in Scotland. Well, they are not the ancestors of the Scots. That would be Irish people who moved over from Ireland and displaced the Picts. And all of that is going on in the background of all of this as well. So, I mean, even even the vocabulary has to be amended somewhat to take account 
because because if you know just reading the word Irish automatically puts you in mind of Ireland, and that's not these might be Irish people who have never even seen Ireland, uh, which I think needs to be kept into account or kept kept in our minds as we talk about this. Uh, I don't know, David. What would you, what would you add to that? I mean, they are they are preserving a good bit of what of of what of what is lost and pushed out, um, but it, you know, the Irish save save civilization thesis um, sort of leaves out um, the fact that there are lots of monastic islands. <laughs> right, and and uh, uh, just listeners, so this isn't all inside baseball. Uh, uh, what what Bede tells us is that uh, the can we I guess we can call it the Celtic Church. I think is is kind of the historical way to refer to it. Uh, doesn't get stamped out by the pagan Anglo-Saxons the way the Church in England does. So it survives, uh, kind of off the uh, coast of Scotland, uh, maybe in Ireland, maybe in Scotland, but certainly in these islands. Uh, and then these islands start sending out missionaries, which then begin the process of re-evangelization uh, after the Saxon conquest is complete. Uh, and a, a, I'm hesitant to call him a scholar. He's, he's a very good writer uh, with some interesting things to say about important topics. And I think that's probably as generous as I can be. Uh, this guy named I, uh, Thomas Cahill writes a book called How the Irish Saved Civilization, uh, where he uh, he kind of super focuses on these Irish missionaries uh, and talks about them bringing back you know learning and bringing back copies of manuscripts and so on uh, after the the Dark Ages that were brought about by the fall of Rome. Yeah. Uh, what? Uh, sorry. Go ahead. All of that is true as far as it goes, but it is the same thing is also going on basically anywhere there is a Benedictine Abbey. So you could also call it how the Italians right. saved civilization, and how you know the, the same thing is even going on among the heathen, uh, among the heathen Anglo-Saxons once they have converted as well. Right, and and uh, what Cahill leaves out, and uh, what is you can't miss when you read Bede is that while the Irish are evangelizing from kind of the north and the east, uh, the Roman church is evangelizing from the south. Uh, so yes. uh, uh, the, the uh, Roman church is sending missionaries, which, which does lead to kind of a second layer of conflict. If we have the, the first layer of conflict uh, are all these different uh, kingdoms. I, I'll, I like the, uh, I like calling it balkanization. I think that's a good, good approach, right? Uh, uh, there's, there's ethnic and uh, linguistic conflict between all these different peoples. Uh, there is also religious conflict, not just between pagan and Christian, but between two competing churches. Uh, and, uh, the, the historians I've read have been at great pains to point out that there's no theological difference. It's just a difference of ritual, uh, and, uh, dates, uh, especially the date of Easter. I, uh, I don't know if I'm completely sold on that, but that's because I don't know how much we actually know about the theology of the Celtic Church. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll defer to you guys on that. I mean, there may be a ton of sources out there, and I just don't know anything about them. But uh, uh, I, I don't know for sure if that's, if that's the case. Uh, Bede certainly seems to think it is. Uh, Bede seems to think that, yeah, this is, this is just a ritual distinction, but it matters nonetheless, right? It's deeply important nevertheless. Um, do you guys want to try to dig into that? I don't know that I can. I feel comfortable talking about what day Easter should be on. <laughs> the only thing, the the thing that I kept coming back to in reading about all that, uh, because I love the Middle Ages and I'm constantly trying to put out the fires of modern prejudice against the Middle Ages, um, 
you know, there's this kind of recurrent myth, for lack of a better word, that is put out put out around Easter by various atheists and the rest of the year by neo-pagans um, that, you know, Easter was some sort of, you know, just a pagan holiday that was completely repurposed. And the clue to that is that the name Easter comes from Anglo-Saxon and it's the name of, you know, some Saxon goddess. Uh, all of that is problematic historiographically. Um, we, we have no real evidence of any goddess with any rights associated with her named Easter. Um, but also, this is a holiday that clearly pre-exists contact with the Anglo-Saxons. They're just using a local name for it. Um, it. It's something that clearly matters to the rest of the church on the continent, right? And and it is taking th these arguments are taking place within that context. Um, I, I just get annoyed every time Easter rolls around, and you know you get those supermarket checkout magazines about you know the real history of where Easter came from. Uh, Bede puts the lie to those kinds of stories. If I remember rightly, it is Bede who actually preserves the. We call it Easter because there was some goddess named Easter. But that's something. It's, it's like one line. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Neo paganism has been built on less. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I mean, it, it's it's worth remembering that we get this idea of how the Irish saved civilization. Uh, as if they were the only ones hovering, you know, west of this, you know, pagan Britain coming over to convert, you know, this this wholly heathenized island. But the island wasn't wholly heathenized, right? The, the, the Britons who had been displaced and sort of moved over the mountains to the west in Wales and in Cornwall, and then they were up in Strathclyde, Galloway, um, they were Christians, Right. They had bishops, but they continued to be in a state of war with, you know, this this you know balkanized chunk of little kingdoms that we're calling the you know the heptarchy, right? So yeah, there's Christians on the island. There's some remembrance of that older civilization on the island. They're just not on speaking terms with the yeah. English, and so. You know, it, it, it's not as if the Irish are the last place where this is preserved. They're just the only ones that are actually willing to go initially and, you know, kind of talk to the English about it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which right. is a point Bede makes several times about yes. how uh, even where certain regions inhabited by British people might be fi finally observing the correct date for Easter, hooray. Um, they, you know, they still are bitter and antagonistic toward Anglo-Saxons. And, um, and, and I think he even calls them out for like refusing to evangelize the ones that are still heathen, uh, which is yeah, a really, I wish we had more about that. Yeah. Uh, especially, especially given the amount of division in Christianity in our culture. Uh, right. that, that's an example I'd like to learn from. Yeah. And, and, uh, that's, that's actually another, uh, place where I have seen this this competing church narrative right the uh, uh, the Britons the Saxons and the Irish and then the the Roman Roman Church coming up from the south uh, brought up is by uh, oh what's a what's another generous way to put this overly enthusiastic Protestant historians uh, yes. who don't want to cede the entire Middle Ages uh, to the Roman Catholic Church 
uh, who then take uh, take these other these competing churches and say, look, it wasn't just Rome all the way down. Uh, there there are these other things, and we don't know what they taught, so they must have been Protestants. Uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, if you uh, if you've ever read uh, oh any of the the trash Baptist histories from the 19th century, uh, right. what what is the name for those guys? The Landmarkists. Uh, the, yeah. What I what I think of is um, the Trail of Blood. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. That's the extreme version of it, where there's this like crypto fundamentalist Baptists, you know, remnant that somehow manages to exist in secret all the way through the Middle Ages until 1517. Uh, you know, with their with their gilt leafed Bibles and their ties on Sundays. Potlucks um, in the dark of night. <laughs> you know the 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 tonsured celibate, saint-venerating, penance-observing Baptists of Ireland. <laughs> uh, yeah, it doesn't quite work. Um, I did a Profiles interview uh, about the rule of St. Columbanus. Columbanus? I think that's, the, I think that's right. Um, it, it was a monastic rule that came out of Ireland. Um the, the Columbanus uh, was sent um, to uh, what, what became France, uh, and he brought his rule with him and started a kind of monastic renewal movement in, you know, Frankish Gaul. Uh, he is, uh, in, you know, you can listen to that interview, but uh, the rule of Columbanus, this Irishman, uh, is uh, one of the one of the elements that introduced the ideas of confession and penance in Western Christianity, right? So the Irish, you know, Celtic Christianity is not some kind of, you know, they would have been Protestants. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not like they were all, you know, they were all a bunch of evangelicals over there until, you know, until Rome got them. You know, right. that, like so, some of the some of the practices, some of the uh, the forms that we associate with uh, medieval Christianity um, came even into Europe from Ireland. Uh, so yeah, I just, I, I, I kind of want to put a stake in that particular idea. That yeah, I mean they they might have saved civilization, but they didn't do much for orthodoxy. So. They're not crypto Protestants. We'll, we'll just right. we'll just leave it there. And if you say, "Well, I, I rather like a Celtic Christianity, not a Roman Christianity," you're not more Protestant thereby. <laughs> yep. you, you might have you might have you might be you know rejecting Petrine primacy, but that's about it. Well, and you know, celebrating Easter on the wrong day. Yeah. Uh, Why would you want to do that? <laughs> Uh, well, is there uh, uh, anything else you guys want to uh, say out of that? Otherwise, um, we should kind of look at what Bede is doing. Well, what Bede does with the Celtic Christianity, um, he acknowledges death where there is death. Uh, sure. In fact, there are several uh, bishops and abbots who had come down from Scotland into Northumbria and were huge players. Um, there's a guy named um, Chad. <laughs> I love that Saint Chad, uh, who is who is one of these, and is uh, appointed a bishop, but then uh, told to step down because there are questions about whether or not 
um, his appointment to that office was legitimate, and and he does. Um, but he he is a representative of this uh, of this Irish Christianity that's coming down from Scotland, and he is presented in Bede as basically an apostle, right, with apostolic level holiness and zeal, walking barefoot through the through the countryside, um, delivering the gospel to everyone. Um, he is he is a good shepherd, but he is one of these. He's he's one of these Christians that Bede, who is very Bede, loves Rome. Like he's he's a Jero man, <laughs> well, and and everyone gets that right. So there's there's the Irish uh, Chad, uh, but there's also uh, Aiden. Was that his name? Who ends up as the bishop or archbishop for the whole island? Uh, the Saxons get a couple of uh, archbishops uh, appointed, and uh, even some of the uh, the old you know British hiding out in Wales. Like everyone gets their moment. Uh, Bede's super even-handed with this. Uh, he he really does have, for all of his biases in favor of Rome, mm. uh, he is he is very generous in his uh, in his historical uh, uh, judgment. Yeah, I mean, I, ultimately he sees the calculation of Easter as enormously important, but also hard to do. forgive people who didn't know how to do the math right but he's not as specially forgiving of people who insist on doing it wrong after they've been taught the right way so you know like if getting the maths wrong he's 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 more tolerant of but hard-headedness in the face of of proper maths (laughs) although uh even even then uh I mean, one of the things that struck me the first time I read this was how, I, again, I, I don't know what the right word is, the, the method of solving, of resolving those sorts of disputes uh, is never force and it's never authority, right? It, it's never yeah. Rome has spoken, therefore fall in line, uh, and it's never the church has spoken, so now the king's going to march out and get you. It's always uh, kind of patient preaching uh, councils and focus groups and all of those sorts of things that we use to make decisions. Uh, and people don't fall in line. People don't fall in line. They can they can go on their way. Like there there is no, and maybe that's just the nature of the kind of political weakness of the church at this point, or the fact that no no kingdom is stronger than another. Uh, I, I I want to assume that Bede thinks that's just the right way to do it. It certainly seems like it. And um, I I think there's a little something to what you said right there is that, I mean, even if you had a Borgia Pope at this time, you know, one of those like obviously corrupt, you know, you know, uh, Italian merchant family popes that had bought their way into the office and wanted to use some kind of coercion to enforce uniformity in in whatever regard, uh, nobody could do that at this time so I, I think I, I mean I I think it just doesn't occur to be as a possibility because it's not possible um, mm-hmm. may, maybe he would maybe he would think differently I it, in you know say the right you know during the time period of innocent the third when you actually do have you know a Saint Dominic who can try to persuade but nevertheless fall back on some kind of secular authority if persuasion fails i don't i don't know i i would like to think that bead would always defer to persuasion um but i really don't know because i think that is again partially the nature of the world in which he lives at the time 
Um, and I'd, I'd want to tweak a little bit, you know, not using authority by authority, meaning, you know, like sending in the troops. Yeah. Uh, there, there, he does appeal, you know, one, one of the main interests of all medieval scholars is authority. Like, how do you have the authority that you claim to have from whence does it come? Is that legitimate? Uh, and what exactly does that confer on you in the position that you enjoy, right? Because it is the position that you have that makes the man not, you know, necessarily any person's particular virtues, uh, for better or worse. And, I mean, th- there is constant reference to, uh, you know, what a, what a, um, I'm trying to think of ex- the, the exact phrase from, like, Edmund Burke. There's, there's, like, constant reference to just the way things have been done. Right. This this right. is this is the use of the church. This is the way it has been done, and that carries a certain amount of weight on its own. Uh, and especially when you can establish a biblical precedent for it. So you've got you know the authority of the scriptures, the authority of what, for lack of a better word, we can call tradition. Especially when those two things mesh, uh, those are the kinds of authorities that he freely appeals to, even if um, what we might think of as again appeal to strength maybe or appeal to coercion uh it just doesn't show up i don't does that make a kind of sense it it does it's just the issue is you have competing traditions yes you have two genuinely old uh models right uh and he i'd I'd have to go back and read it again to to confirm this but i i'm pretty sure he never pulls rank if that makes sense He, he never says hey uh we have a we have a more important bishop on our side no, we, def- we definitely have a, doesn't do that. So, so this, yes, tradition is the authority, but what do you do when there are these two traditions that compete? Well, yeah. he doesn't say, hey, X church is on our side, X church is more important, therefore fall in line, right. whether well, that's backed up with force or not. Well, and again, there's there's only one church within these arguments, right? Yeah. Um, and because for all, all other things being equal, he does view this as a inter-family argument. Um, for what it's worth, which I again I think is one of his strong points that generosity comes through, and I I love that. Uh, um, and I'm trying now I'm trying to remember every detail of all of the you know, the letters and things that he quotes. And and yeah, he doesn't pull rank. He doesn't say this is the way it's been done. Therefore, shape up. It is always uh, what's what's the best way to put it. It is always legitimate move in the persuasion game that he's playing, but it is not the only move that he makes. And it's not even the most important move uh, because he does defer repeatedly. I mean, there's that long letter about, is it, does he go to Genesis or Leviticus to try to, to help bolster the argument for the correct date of Easter? That is, I, it, it got, it, that was one of the few places where I like really kind of started to glaze over. Uh, But he is, again, I mean, he's, he's trying to establish, multiple grounds for uh, for the arguments. I guess what I'm trying to say is that, I mean, that the fact that he puts as much effort into the argumentation as he does says something. Yeah. The, the Senate of Whitby is uh, discussed. That was mm-hmm. in the generation before Bede's birth. Right, so the right. story of the, the poet Cadman um, at the uh, the famous uh, the famous double monastery at Whitby, ruled over by the equally famous uh, Abbess Hild, who presides over Whitby, um, the way that he presents 
the, the account of Whitby in which there is this discussion about whether we will observe the Roman way or the, the, uh, the Irish way in Northumbria particularly um, is ultimately settled by the king asking whose tradition do you fo- who which pos- apostle do you follow and the Irish say we follow John and the Roman and the, the 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 Roman Church, the English Church from further south, saying we follow Peter, and he's like, okay, well, which one is better, <laughs> Peter or John? And the Roman guy says, well, I mean, Peter's got the keys, so and the king's like, okay, well, we're gonna go with Peter. So so Bede has this account of a time in which that decision was made in that very Petrine supremacy. That's it. Like, but but it seems to be clear too that that king didn't understand the arguments. <laughs> He's right. like Constantine at Nicaea. He wants to just boil it down to okay, who's you know if if if, John, if Peter and John fight, who wins? <laughs> but that's not the last move in the book. I love that you brought up that long, confusing. I think it's chapter twenty-one in the very last book. It is. There are four chapters after that chapter, and it is longer than all four of those chapters. <laughs> it's this incredibly long letter from an abbot to a bishop laboriously explaining the, the biblical, uh, theological, and chronometrical arguments for why you should calculate Easter in the way that the, 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 the Western Roman Church did. Here's what's important about that. Um, it's one of the very last moves in the book. So that's meant to stick in your mind. Not Whitby. Not like Peter wins when, in an arm wrestling match of apostles. <laughs> but rather, this is this is the better argument. Um, it's also written by a guy named Cholfrith, who was Bede's abbot and teacher. Right? It's Cholfrith who was sent by Benedict Bishop to found the monastic community at St. Paul's of Jerome. And it is Cholfrith who is Bede's main teacher and mentor as he is a child, as he is an adolescent, as he is coming to manhood. Um, the, uh, the death, uh, the, the uh, death of Cholfrith as he makes a pilgrimage to Rome to deliver one of those big Bibles, um, hit Bede hard. We have some letters, of, uh, a letter of Bede, in which he reflects on how how much it hurts him that Cholfrith is gone. So Cholfrith was this scholar who was massively interested in not winning the argument for Easter, but making the argument for Easter. And that's the last witness that you get on the topic in Bede's ecclesiastical history. And then later Bede himself writes this book on time, which is like a ten times as long expansion of that letter. For him, getting Easter right means that you get astronomical time right, that you got seasonal cycles right, and that you got the liturgical calendar going back to Leviticus right. So for him, every scale of time that is ordained by the Creator, who gave us stars and seasons and covenants, 
all of them sequence, converge, and chime together at Easter. All of time and all of time's cycles mean Easter. And so for him, getting Easter right is getting everything right. <laughs> so, like, you can see why this would be enormously important to someone like B, who is so, who thinks so much in these kind of harmonized systems. Like, for us, that just feels like, like weird trivia. Right? But for him, getting Easter right means you get the universe right, you get Earth right, you get scripture right, and all of it chimes together. Um, and that's something that he learned from his master. So, you know, I, I'm not trying to persuade anybody that Easter, getting the date of Easter right, is as, as important as Beat says it is. I'm just trying to say there's a reason why he thought it was enormously important. Um, he's not just wasting your time, and he's not petty because he thinks this is the thing that makes sense of everything. Well, and he's also not dealing with heretics at this point, so he does talk about uh, some of the, uh, the the older heresies. But if he were dealing with people who, you know, claimed to be Christian and denied the resurrection, or oh yeah, uh, had a had a bad theology of Easter, that presumably he would have said, you know, the date's important and all, but yeah, he doesn't uh, get into them. Yeah, context, <laughs> right. Uh, well, anything uh, anything else you guys want to bring out out of bead? We've been going at this for about an hour. Uh, two things for me. Uh, one is just the wealth of great stories in bead. Um, what I what I tell my students all the time is that unlike the authors of their textbooks, uh, historians until relatively recently were obliged to be interesting because um, they had audiences that might stand up and walk away. Uh, and Bede is full of really great stuff. Um, Cadman, who I think David mentioned earlier, uh, is one of the classic stories and um, hints at – one of the reasons I love the story of Cadman in addition to a couple of the other ones is that um, it hints at the broader world in which Bede is writing. Um, so, you know, so you get little glimpses of the common people, which is unusual. And, and Bede, it also brings out Bede's attention to uh, – cultural difference which we've already noted a little bit um and something that i think is very winsome about him is his view which i think we would do well to recover that there is such a thing as ethnic difference and that's okay uh it is great that the anglo-saxons are the anglo-saxons and the britons are the britons and the irish are the irish uh because we're all in the same big house of the church together right you know what what unites us is christ not the language that we speak or the clothes that we wear um, in, which I think is a, um, again, a vision I'd like to recover a little bit more. Um, but um, part of that attention is his attention to language. And he takes pains to point out many times that certain people are, you know, translating scriptures or translating particular prayers or psalms into language that the common people can understand, uh, which, you know, to go back to putting stakes in certain myths, uh, the idea that, you know, the Bible was completely unavail unavailable in the vernacular until, you know, someone like Wycliffe comes along. Um, they're already doing that in Anglo-Saxon. At the same time, you know, Cyril and Methodius are doing that in Eastern Europe. And, you know, you've got Visigothic scriptures and, and you know, old, old Church Slavonic and things like that. Um, Bede is paying attention to that as well. Uh, 
the texts themselves are some, you know, if having a physical text is sometimes not as important as simply being able to present it spoken to people who can't read. Um, but I, I also like that uh, Bede points out in a number of instances that particular churchmen are not only theologically sound, but they have mastered folk folk literature, right? They can actually respin, you know, repurpose biblical stories and put them out there in what we would now call alliterative heroic verse, right? Uh, and if I remember correctly, in his little mini bibliography he provides, he even talks about a couple of books he's written both in Latin and in heroic verse for the purposes of the common people hearing and enjoying that. And we, you know, we still have some samples of that that have survived from the Anglo-Saxon period. There's a really awesome uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon Genesis and Exodus. And the Genesis is basically like Milton filtered through Beowulf. Uh, so I would recommend that. Um, and the other thing that I want to bring out of Bede is, uh, again, he, his story is the English people, his people and God's redemption of them uh, from heathendom and, you know, the times of ignorance that God is winking at and, and you know, bringing them into the fold. Uh, but you can get a really good glimpse of the, I hate the word global, let's, let's just say the transnational reach of the church. Uh, because the missionaries who are coming to the English people are Irish, they are British, they are from the Mediterranean basin, they're coming from very, very far away, and then the English are going back out into that world once they're connected into it. And uh, Bede treats it as kind of, you know, no big deal. That That's just what the church does, and I really like that vision. Yeah. Uh, David, you got anything to uh, to add on Bede? All the things, all the things Jordan just said. Um on his deathbed, Bede is both composing vernacular verse to exhort his students to be mindful that they too will die and give an account for how they live. And he's doing this in their own mother tongue. Um, also, uh, in his last weeks of illness before his death, he is translating the Gospel of John into Old English. Right? So... Um, this is the, the, that that vernacular uh, emphasis that you brought up, Jordan. Is I mean, it's it's absolutely spot on, and maybe surprising for someone who's brought up in a monastery that is so romified. <laughs> but also, Cadman was a Northumbrian. The idea that the English could sing to the Lord Christ in English was a Northumbrian thing. And so we, we he is as as Romish as Bede is, he is also profoundly a Northumbrian Christian. And so that that treasuring of, you know, somehow the wave of Pentecost, the long, slow wave of Pentecost finally reaches the English people and now they can praise in God in their tongue too. Right? Um that's that's in there. Uh sources um, we've been talking about Bede's ecclesiastical history. Uh, his life of St. Cuthbert is wonderful. Um, just, just a beautiful example of an, uh, an early medieval, uh, saint's life, um, of someone who isn't a martyr, right, but is a monk, uh, which is a different, a slightly different model and includes a story of him playing with otters on a beach. Um... That's fun. Uh, his uh, his life of the abbots is a little bit drier there, 
Um, but his his life of Cuthbert is is wonderful. Um, his sermons uh, are really interesting. In fact, one of the it will be in the past by the time this airs on City of Man. But uh, uh, wibbly wobbly timey wimey things. Um, uh, I'm I'm prepping for an episode for Christian Humanist podcast. We're gonna where we're gonna be talking about a sermon um, by Bede about the beheading of John the Baptist. And it's it's fascinating because it's so not what we often expect from a medieval theologian. It's not all allegory and symbol sim, symbolized spiritual stuff. Um, it's deep historical context and interest in what is the role of the martyr in the larger history of you know God's work with His people and what does this imply for me practically today. Um, does be, does Bede argue that John had it coming? <laughs> uh, he, he, in the sense that God deigned gloriously to dramatically <laughs> punctuate his prophetic office with martyrdom. Yes. So not not that far beyond what we'd expect. <laughs> no, no siding with Herod there. No, he's not. He's not siding with Herod. He's just. He's just saying. Isn't it amazingly wonderful that he got the the great privilege of being beheaded for speaking the truth? <laughs> Christ is the truth, so he's a martyr for Christ. I mean, if you have to be martyred, I think, or or get to be martyred, to use the bead language, I suppose beheading is probably a way to go. Yeah, that's if you've got a if you've got a good executioner. <laughs> yeah, quick quick beheading, right? That's the. Uh... <laughs> None, none of this two chop nonsense. <laughs> right. Um, any uh, 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 Jordan? Any other book recommendations? I, I didn't. I forgot to ask you. Uh, no, for, I'm glad, for I'm glad David mentioned those. Uh, you can find them. Uh, the the bead that I reread for this is the Penguin Classics edition, which was translated by Leo Shirley Price, which is a wonderful British hyphenated name. Um, uh, it's been updated by a guy named D.H. Farmer. Uh, who did the translations for another Penguin volume called The Age of Bede, which includes... Oh, there you go. Uh, dear listeners, uh, David is holding his copy up. Mine is on the shelf across the room. Uh, it includes the life of Cuthbert. It includes the lives of the abbots. It also includes um, a really great text that hasn't entered our discussion, but it's called The Life of Brendan, uh, who is an Irish saint of the generation after Patrick, um, which is a really another really great bonus. Um and uh, I'm always, I like, you know, I, mean, I mentioned those uh, Anglo-Saxon poems like Exodus and Genesis. Uh, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is uh, bone dry, but it is wonderful <laughs> because it be, because it is just yeah. data, if you want to put it that way. Uh, it begin, it is, it is begun after Bede, but it is, uh, it, it runs way, way back, and it is worth worth looking at for an example of the other kind of medieval historiography, which I'm sure we'll get more acquainted with as we go forward. Not if I can avoid it. Uh. <laughs> my, fa- my favorites in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle are like interpolations. Uh, like it, it looks from some manuscripts where the handwriting suddenly changes. Like the theory is that, you know, in, you know, the D text or whatever, maybe a monk from some other part of England was visiting and he was like, Hey, you got to go back to the entry for this year and add this. And so, you know, you get things like fiery dragons were seen over Northumbria 
and you know specific stories about 1066 and things. It's the the multiple manuscript tradition is complicated as heck, but it is a lot of fun. Yeah, there's also reigns of blood and stuff. Yes. Yeah, I uh, if if we're gonna do that, uh, let's let's just do some of the uh, the sagas or the uh, uh, the the poetry. We could do the Nibelungen lead, or I mean, there's any yeah. number of options Vol- we've got. Volsung saga, you're talking my language now. I I love those. We're definitely gonna do an episode on those. Yes. So, um, all right, well that's that's probably a good place to uh, to leave it, uh, guys. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks. Well, thank you listeners for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting christianhumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show, like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Podcast, or get in touch with us at cityofmanpodcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. Is there not a white night upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn and I dream of what I need. I need a hero. I shout out for a hero. Tell me end of the night. I pray he behave. Queen it of he and newly returned from the fire. With a wit that will thrill and excite, thrill and excite.